started with that, but before then we'll pray and get started. Lord, we thank you for the time this morning. We'd ask now that we would receive a measure of your spirit to understand your word and understand who we are in light of what your revelation gives. As so we'd ask now that you would reveal that to us. Um, be gracious to us, your creatures. In Christ's name, amen. Okay. Revelation 12.9, as I pull up my notes here. Who's the author of Revelation? John. And uh, what do we read in 12.9? And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Okay. So what you have here is what we would call biblical continuity, a complete coherence. From John's understanding, now we're going to go to Genesis 3 for most of the morning this morning, where you're not going to read Satan, etc. But John's understanding, clearly, as he, as he penned that, he knew exactly who he was talking about. And um, if you believe in Revelation 12.9 that he is anything but that, you're going to have some issues. He's not a literal serpent. So... We're going to get introduced to that. So let's go to uh, Genesis 3. This is where we'll spend the bulk of our time today. And once again, um, just by way of review, because some folks were not here last week. Most of you were. We talked about this study, why it's important. Um, what are some of the things that you guys can recall that we, why is this important? What did we mention? What are some of the things that we actually discussed as well as, I want you to interact with me. I don't want you turning on your spiritual, uh-huh. This tells me that actually you're, you're, I guess, listening to what I'm saying and reiterating what we've talked about. So what did we talk about last week? What? Yep. Yes. Um, what what yeah. Sort of what are, yep, that's exactly what it is. And we, you can use the term anthropology, I mean, in a secular sense, it's the study of humans, the study of man. But because we're Christians, we wish to discuss this in terms of what does the Bible teach us about man. So, biblical anthropology, why do we want to study this? Why do we want to get this right? Okay. Anything else we mentioned? Then we talk about negative aspects or negative presentations of mankind and positive presentations of mankind and what are some of those other things we talked about? <clears throat> yep. Yep, we have competing views of what man is and um, some of those are very recent. Um, we have not only the negative aspects that we can look at historically, all the things that man has done in the negative sense, but we do recognize as well because we were made in God's image, there are positive outworkings of mankind. We talked about technology, we talked about some of that other stuff. Anything else we mentioned? Why is, I talked last week about, but if you get this wrong, okay, we wouldn't understand redemption. Um, what else? Did, if you get this doctrine wrong, how else does it kind of manifest itself? 
like culture and how you um, view, I think you had mentioned last week, like how you view the conservation movement and everything like that, all the particulars of yeah. And then we, we talked too about how this has ramifications for the church. And it has manifested itself in the church in different ways. And what are some of the, if you get the doctrine of man off, what happens to the church? Or how does the church, what, what could happen to the church if they start taking the wrong perspective of what the scriptures teach about man? Well, they end up not preaching truth. Okay. I mentioned a word last week. Um, you'll start seeing this real, these pragmatic expressions of the Christian life. What man will do is manifest um, some sort of order, some sort of checklist, just do this, because he's starting with himself. And if, and if I start there, then I can create these systems because he really doesn't understand what the scriptures would say about who we really are. So that was another thing. So uh, what's interesting is um, when you do study and stuff, it's kind of fun. Providentially, I, <clears throat> I have an eclectic interest in music. I'm not going to reveal the music I listen to, but it's eclectic. It's all over the whole spectrum. But as I was swimming this week, I was listening to the song. I'm like, oh, the timing of this couldn't be more perfect. So um, I shared last week the Invictus poem, which was really, this is man. I'm great, I'm gonna press on. But I heard these lyrics in this song, so I'm gonna share them with you. So the selfish, they're all standing in line, faithing and hoping to buy themselves time. Me, I figure as each breath goes by, I only own my mind. The north is to south, what the clock is to time. There's east and there's west and there's everywhere life. I know I was born and I know that I'll die. The in-between is mine. So anyways. Just thought it would, thought that chair, the timing of that couldn't be more perfect. Okay, so let's open up to Genesis 3. Let's get this party started. All right. I mentioned last week too that um, often these first 11 chapters of Genesis just don't get uh, the necessary attention they need. They're read over in a really succinct fashion. Nothing also attributed to it, when there's actually a lot going on here that you have to interact with. And if it doesn't generate questions on your own, then these are some thoughts that we can consider. All right, before we enter three, we, we got two established, we said the creation was a what? Good. Well, more specifically, it was, what did God do? Right, which we call what? Decree? Remember that? He decrees creation. No one, no one is consulted in the creation process. He doesn't need anything to do that. He decrees creation. Creation takes place. And right away we see distinction between man and animal. We see purpose. We see meaning. We see basically employment for the creation. So that was all set in two. At the very end of two, there's a very, very uh, good verse. At the end of the chapter, it tells us that Adam and Eve were what? And they, in what state they weren't ashamed in? Naked. Naked, okay. That's good for us to understand. All right, so we enter three. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. Now I'm reading out of the 
legacy standard today. So what they've done with the, the Godhead language, they specifically use the term Yahweh. So beast of the field, which Yahweh God had made. So what do we know about the devil right away? He's made. He didn't manifest himself. Um, he, you know, he is made. I have to go back and forth to my notes here. So we are introduced, essentially, who, when we read in Revelation 12:9, we've come to know that this is our enemy all along. Now, the term Satan isn't used here, but John clearly understood, as the coherence of the scriptures unfold, that's who he's talking about here. He was very aware of this story. That's the conclusion I, I think I can safely make. So we believe, obviously, he's more than a serpent. And the Revelation 12:9 passage gives us that. So he's more than a snake. He's made by God. And we're going to see in 3.2, someone read some of this uh, 3.2 for me. I've got to go back and forth here. Okay. And then back in 3.1, I messed up here. And he said to the woman, and she says back to him. So what, what can Eve and the snake, what are they doing? They're communicating. Eve has the ability to talk to the devil. And he has the ability to talk to her. Right? I think you can all agree with that. And so the woman says to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. So is she wrong? No. What does this demonstrate on behalf of Eve? Now, if we don't get through all the three today, that's fine. But what can you can infer from this? She, under, she understands what has been said. She has a clear understanding of it. Um, but from the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it and you shall not touch it lest you die. And man, has there been ink spilt on this? Let me go back to my notes here. We talked about this. They clearly can understand each other as they're speaking with one another. But then Eve says this, and we're left with a question. And what's the question? Was she misquoting God? Yeah, where did she get this... Yeah, right. So the touching of it. Why, why, did she, why did this take place? Did she misunderstand? Did she... Why the addition of the touching? Because in the initial command, that's never mentioned. Right? So it, it's, it's, just, it's, it's, a, it's a point that... Listen, I've tried to find, like, there's no definitive why is this there. It just... This is what Eve said. Um, and then we get to the classic stuff. And four, <clears throat> the serpent says to the woman, you surely will not die. So you got to think about this a little bit. Do Adam and Eve have a concept of death? We probably know more about death today than they did. We know about aging. We know about disease. We know that the lifespan is limited. 
And so they're dealing with this stuff that they have really have no understanding about how it would be manifested. But Satan is encouraging her that that's not true, what you were told is not true, um, etc. Um, for God knows that in the day, verse 5, you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Once again, you have to interact with this text. Is what the serpent's saying here incorrect? Okay, what part is that? Okay. We're going to read later in the chapter that's exactly what takes place after the fall. God himself will confirm they now know good and evil, etc. Now, think about this. From verse 3 on, we're talking about the tree. They must have known what, which tree was no-go. They clearly knew that it had to have some sort of identifier that probably set itself apart. They recognized it. They knew it was there. But I, you think about that. So it's, what I'm getting at here is all of the cognition that Adam and Eve have is sufficient for them to really know what they can and can't do, what they're supposed to do or not supposed to do. Okay. And we don't know why the touching aspect was there. It's not part of the initial command. What went on here? Uncertain. Okay, but man also has the ability to reason. And I'm just wondering, especially in terms of the fact that she was a woman, her look at it is you cannot eat it, therefore you should not touch. Ah. You should not get near enough. I. I, I, I Welcome to my world. Yeah, it's uh, uh, you can you can you can speculate, uh, but the main thing is to see that her iteration is not part of the original command. That's the difference. Okay. So, anyways, they clearly knew what this tree was, and they were not to eat from it. All right. So I need to mention this because a lot of this stuff comes up when we concluded the creation, chapter two. Chapter 1, Chapter 2, we know, what do we know about the creation in general? It's very good. Okay, it's, it's very good. Would you go so far as to say it's perfect? Because it wasn't, nothing there was going to die. Okay, all right. So <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try to worm our way through this because I don't want to get in the weeds on this, but <clears throat> perfection in creation <clears throat> does not, is not tantamount to what we call immutability. So God can create, and he can create so perfectly, but that does not mean it's immutable. You guys, who here knows what immutable means? Tim? Right. It, well, there's a, a different way to say it. It can't be or affected. Nothing affects it. So, and what do we have? What is the only thing we have that we know is immutable? God himself. So he can create perfectly, but he doesn't create clearly, as we're going to see, Adam and Eve, and the creation itself is not immutable. It's not that it can't be affected. And that's hard for us to wrap our minds around because... Um, 
and the mechanics of this we really don't understand. I mean, the only thing that is clear in biblical thought is God is creator. He is immutable. He is not affected by any of this. But his creation can be. And it's, I think when people, when we're working through Genesis like this, that's hard for us to understand because we want to answer those questions. Why did this happen? Well, clearly, Adam and Eve were able to be affected. God didn't create him immutable. Does that make sense? Everyone tracking with that? <clears throat> so, the created hosts, which we also have learned that the devil himself is created, but they clearly have an ability at that time to change. And we... Correct. Okay. Yes. And so, when we get into Genesis 3, you have what's called a fourfold psychology to the chapter. So, in the temptation from Satan to man, there's going to be change in what... I'm going to use big words, but I have to. The metaphysics change. Does anyone know here what metaphysics mean? The nature of, nature of reality changes. Epistemology is going to change. Do you know what epistemology is? Yeah. How we know what we know, that changes. Ethics will change. And the whole ascetic of the creature and the creation changes from three on. So the temptation that takes place is basically, um, there are portions that talk about Satan's past, etc. but the temptation is an examination or an expression of full independence from the Creator. So, I'm glad you brought that up. Who did the homework? Toby? Dave? And that Dave. So the homework last week was what? Yep, read the chapter in the confession on free will. So whenever we use that term, or that, that phrase, it has to be qualified. What do we mean when we say free will? I would say at this point in time in the creation, clearly Adam and Eve have ability. They have capacity to engage in what's going to take place in the rest of the chapter. What happens after that, we'll continue to read and move on through and see when we talk, when we use that phrase now, what we actually mean. So, okay, enough with the big words. I'll try to, okay, be metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, and aesthetic. That is kind of the fourfold psychology that happens after the fall. And this temptation is the expression of a complete and utter independence from God himself, okay? And, and I know this is kind of complicated. Trust me, there is a, a lot to read on these topics. Um, many theologians have discussed what goes on in the first three chapters of Genesis. They've written extensively on it. Um, some inferred... This is another tricky part we're going to get into with the, with the fruit eating. And don't you ever ask yourself, like, okay, well, where was Adam specifically? That's, that's what we would assume. He, he eventually eats of the fruit, right? Does it say specifically he's standing right there when it takes place? 
Now, I'm going to make the argument that I, I think that that is what actually takes place, but that's just, the point I'm making is theologians have tried to tease this out. I mean, they're in the garden together. It's like, where could he have gone? Where, where's, where's he going to be that she's not, etc.? Mm-hmm. Was with her where? Was with her right by her side? Do you picture Adam and Eve standing right next to each other as they're having this interaction with Satan? Okay, so if that's the case... Why is he silent? <laughs> some have inferred that Adam... It could have been there. We don't know. Is he right next to her? We don't know. And if he was there, now I'm going to make a connection here that I think will make sense. You guys will probably make the connection. If he was there when the temptation is occurring with Eve, why doesn't he say something? Why doesn't he exercise his what? More specifically, what? Dominion, also known as Headship. All right? So why doesn't he say anything? We're not told that either. Uh, when Satan speaks, um, clearly this is a violation of the command. And he doesn't say anything. Nothing's recorded for us. So although Eve is the one deceived, right? Where does the Apostle Paul put the fall in the book of Romans? On Adam. So he was our, what we call, federal head. So that was his doing. Christ is the second who actually completes what's commanded and does it perfectly. So just some stuff to kind of tease out when people um, interact with this stuff. Okay, back to the chapter. Let's go. Verse 6. Now the woman saw that the tree was good for food <clears throat> and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. I'll stop right there. Tell me what's going on with Eve. Is she, is she passive in this? Neutral. What's... That's right. But she herself, look at the text, she sees it's a delight to the eyes. She has the desire to make one wise. What I'm getting here is Eve is not, the devil doesn't take her hand and eat the tree. That's not what he does. The deception takes place, but there's no physical coercion. Eve is actually, we're, we're seeing here that she is completely engaged in this decision she's about to make. Okay? And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave to the husband with her and he ate. Like I said, is he standing right there? I don't know if, if he was in another part of the garden. Theologians have written on this. I find it amusing that this is their, you know, whatever dissertation. But did she, you know, and if Adam... You know, could, I, I was this week going, well, if he sees Eve coming and it, it's that fruit, he's like, whoa, where, where'd you get that? Like, where did, what are you doing? That's, that's not what happens. So, anyways. All right, verse 7. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. 
At the end of chapter 2, we knew they were naked as well, with no shame. What has happened to Adam and Eve? Anybody want to take a stab and tease out? Because clearly, something has changed within them as created beings, which clearly was not present prior. Yes, they have metaphysically changed. Their reality has changed. Okay, and that's coming. Yeah. Um, This opening of the eyes. Whatever this is, was not there before. There's a fundamental change to the creature. It's, It's just very important to understand that. And they knew that they were naked. So now, from the end of two, now there's this, as they see one another, something's all messed up. This is, and we're going to see later too, which is really interesting about the chapter, the coverings take place, but the coverings continue to exist from three on. So anyways, do you see that? Eyes opened. Something's wrong with us being naked now. Okay. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, they they lost the state of of where they were, which was perfection. But anyways, now, this is something very interesting. I've read some stuff on this this week. I don't know why I never thought about it, but there it is. Second part of seven, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. What does that tell you about man? He can make things from the creation, from the start. He has the ability to construct loin coverings to cover the parts he wishes to cover. So we're not these animals. We are born, um, like we talked about before, we're made in the image of God. And that doesn't leave. Matter of fact, later when we get into Genesis, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Because why? He's made in the image of God. We get to Babel, you're going to see the Trinity come down and go, if we don't intervene here, then there's nothing that man can do. What I'm getting at with that is, man's capable, very capable. You can just look at technology today. We're very capable. So they sow the fig leaves, and they see the necessity to cover. Okay? Something is definitely fundamentally changed with Adam and Eve. Do you see that? It's not like it was before. All right. And this is interesting in eight. Then they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What can you infer from that first part of that verse? Sorry. <laughs> That's what I was told when I, I was a kid and I heard thunder that God was moving furniture. Anybody else ever heard that? So, yeah, bowling. Um, what, what do you guys take away from the first part of eight? 
Yeah. They knew when God was present. They, they knew when he was in their midst. And so they hear him coming. It's fascinating. I don't know why it's the cool of the day. I didn't really get very far this week on that. But, but the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh in the midst of the trees of the garden. Once again, they, they recognize his presence. They know when he's been there in, in their interactions in the past. They know he's coming or he's going to interact with them in some fashion. And now the hiding takes place. What does this... You guys, like I said... I want you to interact with this. I want you to think about these things. What does this tell you about mankind? What, where, what is this hiding? This, I got to... Yes. Like it's, it's, it's all right here. Guilt, shame. Man has changed from his previous state. Okay? They, they do and they will even know more about evil. Um, but they understand that they have done wrong. That's right. Yes. And now, this is just Mike's opinion. Um, I find Genesis 3.9 one of the most beautiful verses in all of the scripture. Yahweh God calls to the man and says to him, where are you? That is so intimate it's so, when you meditate on that, because obviously, does the omniscient God not know where Adam and Eve are? He knows exactly where they are. But that, that where are you? And so there's a, what I'm trying to get at here is, between the creature, which is us, and the creator, there is this dynamic to the interaction. The sovereign God is desirous for relationship. And we're going to find out later in the new covenant, essentially, he changes that. He changes us to receive that relationship. But there is a desirous aspect of him going after man. Where are you? Okay. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. Clearly, he knew when God was present. And now... I was afraid. Now we have fear, nakedness, shame, and just, and this desire to get away from God and hide from Him. I was naked, so I hid. And God says in 11, now this is interesting. Who told you you were naked? Any takers on that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can you infer that Satan in some capacity post-fall maybe revealed something about their nature now, etc.? I don't know, but it is interesting that there's a pronoun here. Who told you you were naked? Did they tell each other that they were naked? And then it's just, you know, you read over it a thousand times, but I just love this. This is, if, if you're a parent with a child... Have you eaten from that tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now, think about this. What I'm getting at is, clearly God knows what's taking place. 
So why the conversation? Why the interaction? Have you ever thought about this? Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, what I'm getting at is the nature of Adam and Eve changes, but the creator-creature relationship that that's still kind of going on here. And so, the simple question. Have you eaten from the tree I told? It, there's more of a um, interaction here, a relationship taking place. And this is what you know. Parents have asked this to their children many times. If you get, I told you guys not to run in the street. Did you guys go run into the street? <clears throat> so there, there's that that's taking place. And immediately in verse 12, um, we have Adam now acting like a fallen human being. This woman you gave me, she did this. Okay? Um, <clears throat> one, one note here, I'm, I'm going back and forth between my notes and, and the text, but when it, when it comes to, the, to Satan, etc., um, you don't engage in debate with him. You just rebuke him. He's a liar from the start. He's a liar from the beginning. And so, just kind of a side note there. Um, let's see here. He was What's that? Who, Adam? Adam. Okay. No, Satan. Satan. Okay. Well, and, and, yeah, we're going we're, to, and we're going to see, he doesn't go without an acknowledgement of what he's done. It's not passive what he's done. But even in the midst of that, we're going to see some other things. So um, immediately Adam defers to just, it's a default blame shift. It's the human. I, this would not have happened if you didn't put her here. So it's completely, I'm, this is not on me. And this is, this is so human of us today, okay? Um, I'm trying to have a note here and I wanted to share, but... Okay. Let's see here. All right, this is... You mentioned this last week, and I'm going to attempt to take a stab at something here. We'll is try to be as even as possible here. Because in, the, in theology, and within Reformed theology, we practice covenant theology. Tim um, did some Sunday school on this. Now, to what degree and to what, how specific and detailed do you want to get? That's one thing. There are those who will argue that what took place here is in fact a covenant of works. Tim addressed this in the Hosea thing where there's, a, there's an allusion to what took place in the garden was in fact covenant. <laughs> then, then even reform guys would say, 
Well, the aspects that you would see in a covenant later on in the Old Testament aren't super specific in the Genesis narrative on the command. And the main reason is because the effects of what would happen are not addressed, it's only death addressed. Getting kicked out of the garden isn't addressed. And then the actual punishments addressed to Satan, Adam, and Eve are not in the forefront attached to the command, if that makes sense. And there's respectable men who just take different perspectives on this. Uh, Some reform guys will actually say they're what we call monocovenantalists. There's just one covenant. Whereas some people would say, no, this covenant here, and this is the purpose and nature of Christ that he completes in the, in the covenant of redemption, because the covenant of works kind of failed, obviously. But it's, multi, it's a multifaceted debate. It's not, it's not gonna change what we're gonna talk about here. Um, but I'm getting out actually where my verse notes are. Um, just worth mentioning. Was that an even, even treatment of the topic? without unfolding the whole history and, and narrative. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, it doesn't change really what we need to know about man in, in Genesis 3. So, okay, Adam blames Eve. Um, she gave it, I ate it. Yeah, Yahweh says to the woman, once again, just I, if you look at the narrative, See it more in a relational state. Uh, when you study this, I know when, when I was younger and as a believer, I had some really distorted views of God. I, I really did. You know, the, you get exposed to hell, fire, and brimstone, and God is this ruling judge. And I think when you read this, you, you see a different aspect. So the question to Eve, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate, which is true. And so we get to the punishments. Um, And Yahweh God said to the serpent, because you have done this, his curse takes place. And clearly, the Apostle John knows about this text, which we read about in Revelation 12, 9. And then we get what we call um, basically the first gospel in 15. Now the thing that's interesting about this is, okay, man has fallen, they have a metaphysical change, they are not what they were before, that's very clear, but God being God, it's like almost, I want to say this, I want to say this without sounding careless, but it is almost like throughout the scripture, God leaves these loopholes. He has a desire to redeem. He creates. He redeems. He pursues people. And we get 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. And what is this? We all know what this means now. Who is this in reference to? What's that? Christ. Because every progeny from here on out that's birthed could be the Messiah. And so enmity between women and Satan. Interesting how that works. So, and then basically the woman receives 
punishment. Eventually, they're going to receive death they, because that was the command. But think about this with Adam. He has no idea what death is. He has no idea what's going to trend. What does death mean? His body's going to begin to age. They're going to be witness to things that take place as we continue on through Genesis. So it's, it's and then he, Eve and him get punishments. Now, pain and childbearing. Um, and then to Adam, he says, very, very interesting here. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, because you have forsaken who I made you to be. Remember, he was created first. Um, and you've eaten from the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat from it. Then he gets his cursing, which now, today, once you read this and you embrace it, as a believer, if you're having a hard time at work, that's normal. It's okay. That's life. And by the way, that's not going to change until death and you're gone. So this is why it is the way it is. And I had a note, I gotta keep going back and forth here, that I was gonna mention here. Yes. That's right. Uh huh. Yeah. But yeah. And, and yeah, and that that analogy works pretty good. But the difference is, um, I'm not immutable. I can't punish perfectly. I can't correct perfectly. I don't know all things. So. I, the analogy works, <clears throat> but there are limitations to the analogy because I'm just like Adam. So I'm prone to do things wrong. I've, I've done things wrong in, as a parent. I've corrected the wrong child. I've, you know, because my, my faculties are not perfect. I don't have, I'm not immutable. I can be affected by things and God is not affected by anything, but still desirous to have relationship. Okay. How much time we got left here? Making sure I'm just covering everything. Your children off just because they aren't quite what you thought they should be. Well, and that's, you know, on the, I'll, I'll actually entertain that. It's what I would argue um, a better position that Reformed theology actually embraces, which we actually talked about in Sunday school a few weeks ago, is the perseverance of the saint. The saint is persevered because God perseveres him. He is the one who sustains him all the way to the end. And so there may be a season where it looks rough, but I don't know what that means. I do know of people who have essentially, on the surface, left the faith. Only years down the road to come back. Because that's what God does. And you can take some of this language from Genesis 3. Where are you? Did you do what I told you not to do? Etc. So, let me get back to the text here. Any other, since we're kind of entertaining comments and questions here, we're into the cursings. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on them. Just suffice it to say, that was the one note that I wanted to say. Listen, think about this. 
when I first became a Christian, I had, I had some wacko, I did not know what I was talking about. So Christ comes, saves us from sin. Sin equals death. And man dies. But I thought, well, if Christ came, why do we still need to die? Why does man still die? You ever spend any time thinking about this? It is a consequence of sin. But I've come to a different conviction on this matter. But anyone else? Why, do we, why does man still incur death? It's our bodies that die. Okay. Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm going to share the conclusion I've come to, and you guys can tune me up later after Sunday school. Just be charitable. We can be kind. I've looked now at the continuity of death as actually the faithfulness of God. He's a faithful God. Who? Someone go to Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. And someone read that for us. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? You eat of that tree, you're going to die. And your whole progeny is going to die. He does not change. It's not like you and me. He said it, and it still happens to this day. And in Genesis 3.15, he said it, and he fulfilled it. So, I see death now as God's faithfulness. That's right. And that's where we're heading next. Um, because there's other stuff going on there. Verse 20, Eve gets named. She's the mother of all the living. Remember we talked about in chapter 2. There's not even a... You don't even have to entertain any of the disturbed uh, sexual expressions of today. They were made, male and female. That's it. Women have babies. That's how this goes down. Then Yahweh God made garments of skin. Now, I don't know where the skin came from. I assume an animal of some sort. And he clothed them. So, it's not like he comes in and like, well, we're going oh, to correct this again and get you back to nakedness. No, the clothing stays. It's an interesting observation. The shame of, of what has happened to their being is not changing. And so clothing remains. That's right. But here we go. Then Yahweh God said, now this is the Trinity speaking, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, now I want you to think about this, this is the Trinity speaking. <laughs> Very important to see this. Now, lest he send forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
what is the triune God saying about us? Okay, what else is it getting to? What is the fallen creature now? What if, what are we what's going on with us? Okay. Yeah. Which tells us about what who what what do we have now? Man has intent. Man has motive. Man is driven by bad motive, bad intent. And God sees this. We've got to act. The, the, the nature of the change in man, he says, we, nope. Now, on that note, as we're going to talk about in the second half when we get to the actual church history stuff of what people said about these things, and if you're interacting with folks who are opposed to what we would call the doctrines of grace, i.e., a Calvinistic soteriology, how man actually gets saved by God. What I try to do is, I try to get him back to here, to Genesis 3. And I want to ask him, if, as you may believe, it wasn't a full fall, or the faculties weren't completely destroyed, or the metaphysics weren't ruined, what remained, and if it did remain, why, didn't, why couldn't the triune God say, well, you know, half of them, they're still all right. And, and we can trust that half that they're going to be good and not do something naughty again. If that was the case, why kick them out of the garden? Why did they have to leave? And they don't leave on their own accord. Am I, am I correct? That's right. That's right. Yes. Yeah. But mm-hmm. It does, but, but interact with what I just mentioned. If there was any remnant of any ability of the creature to do good, why did they have to leave? <laughs> That's right. That has fundamentally changed. So um, there are Christians today who don't believe this. Um, they, they interact with this totally different. They maintain that there was this, uh, this ability remains. And I think we've done a good job of looking at, no, all of man's faculties, the, everything is ruined. So anyways, so therefore, Yahweh God sends him out of the Garden of Eden to go cultivate the ground from which he was taken. By the way, clearly Adam has the ability to cultivate. No one needs to come up and tell him how to cultivate land. He was born with it. Um, so he drives out the man east of the Garden of Eden. And if that wasn't enough, he stations a cherubim. Essentially does like, basically, the earliest version of like, security guards. And if, if it was enough that, all right, they're out of the, the presence of the garden, let them be. No, no. The, man has the ability to, his, his being 
He may just change his mind, pull a 180 and come right back into the garden. God's like, that's not going to happen. You're gone. So, we got about five minutes left of class here. Last week, I titled this portion as the worst day on planet Earth. And it was, and it is. But if you get this wrong, and, and people do, if you permit yourself just a sliver of your own whatever, you are doomed. Is that, I think that we can conclude from Genesis chapter three, yep, and we're gonna see further on here. Um, and we're also gonna see the continuity of this changes, does not change. I'll do a presentation on John chapter three. I'll do a presentation on the end of Job. Um, and then we'll get into Romans. So the continuity, this state that the creature is in now, it's, it needs redemption. Then the only thing that can save it is God himself. Any parting thoughts? Let me look at my notes, make sure I covered everything I thought was... Mm-hmm. In this constantly deteriorating state of, of being. Yeah. But he promised, and he keeps his promises. Okay, and so that's the last note I have on my, my thing here. This is one other thing I'll, I'll close with. And this is where I think is really, if you're here this morning, you're a believer in the gospel, you have been brought to faith in Christ, you understand what, is, what has transpired, okay? And we've finished up where you were before you believed what you believe today. That's a miracle. That's God reaching down to Cindy, agent of my wrath, turn. And it's, it's glorious. So don't lose sight of that. Um, it, that's a miracle. And you see the creation language actually appear in the New Covenant as well. Anyone here know 2 Corinthians 5.17 off, off of memory? Yep. If you're, yep. If you're in Christ, new creation. Old's gone. The new's come. So, yes. It's true. So, if you're here, it's a miracle. Meditate on that, considering where he could have left you. Okay? So, they got, ooh, we're right at 10, but I might watch this two minutes. Any parting comments, questions? Well, I think the only thing I see there is the, the actually, as mankind now, we do have the ability to understand good and evil. So, um, as Paul talks about, you know, the conscience-bearing witness, 
um, we have the ability to know what's right and what's wrong. So that that is that's a curse. <laughs> that's 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 unfortunate, but that's the way it is now. Nothing. All right, I'm going to shut down, Kyle.